Well, as I mentioned, uh, we are in the Gospel of John. I do want to invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 1. This is week number two of our series in the Gospel of John. And uh, as Sam said last week, we're going to be immersed in this Gospel for a good amount of time. Uh, Our mission statement as a church is that we exist to know Jesus and make him known. Uh, We seek to do that every Sunday as we gather and every other day as we scatter to various places about the city. Uh, One of the best ways, I think, for us to do that, to fulfill that mission, to know Jesus and make him known, is to immerse ourselves in the written account of the life and death of Jesus. And so we're going to be doing that in the Gospel of John. Uh, Many people, I know even last week, many people said to me, the Gospel of John is my favorite of the four Gospels. Uh, I'm not sure that I actually have a favorite. Uh, We have four kids as well, and I pretty much don't have a favorite one of those either. I mean, except on some days, right? But for the next several months, as we spend our time in the Gospel of John, we will, in a sense, be treating it as though it is our favorite. Sam introduced us to the Gospel of John last week, and you will remember the opening verses of John's Gospel give us the cosmic view of things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those verses are massive. They give us the view, not just from 30,000 feet, but really the cosmic, the eternal view of all things. And then we come to verse 6, which says... There was a man sent from God whose name was John. It sounds kind of ho-hum by comparison, right? When you get this grand sweeping perspective on Jesus, the word that was there, that all things were made through him, and then we're introduced to this individual, John. It's actually by design. In fact, the entire first chapter of John's gospel does this. It goes back and forth between Jesus, the eternally existent word of God, and John the Baptist, the man who was sent to be his witness. Again, this is intentional. It helps us understand the collision that took place when eternity stepped into time in the person of Jesus. As one commentator put it, the timeless sayings of the prologue are deliberately not separated from, but intertwined with the plain narration of history, because it is in this history that the eternal reality of God is present, active, and manifest. So John starts with the cosmic perspective, but he quickly moves to the everyday world of the first century that Jesus inhabited. And part of God's means of revealing Jesus to the world was through a man by the name of John, the one we refer to as John the Baptist. So we're actually going to look at verses 6 to 13 of chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read it for you now. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, 
but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, I entitled this message, The Defining Relationship. Now, usually when you hear those three words, you are used to hearing them in a different order. So we will talk about defining the relationship or having a DTR conversation. That's when you seek to define the relationship that you have with someone. So maybe you're dating someone or maybe you're, you're dating someone or you're friends with someone and you know how you think about the relationship, but you want to make sure that you are on the same page. So you might say, you know, I, I really like spending time with you and I hope that we could be more than friends. Or maybe you would say, you know, I sense some romantic interest on your part, but all I see, I just see you as a friend. You are defining the relationship. I want to talk to you about something different. I want to talk to you about the defining relationship, the relationship that defines us. Now, there's a sense in which we are defined by lots of different relationships that we have. And sometimes people know us or they relate to us by virtue of our relationship with someone else. Oh, you're John's son or you're Joey's cousin or you're Susan's friend. And there's good and bad that comes from that. I mean, sometimes you just want to be your own person. You want to relate to, the, to people not on the basis of being Jimmy's little brother or Jimmy's little sister. You just want to relate to them as you are, yourself, as an individual. But there are advantages that can sometimes come from those types of relationships, right? Oh, you're a friend of Jeff's. Let me hook you up with the friends and family discount. Or maybe you get into different social circles or whatever because of your relationship with someone else, your connections. Those are defining relationships, and we are, in a sense, defined by lots of different relationships that we have. But as we think about this passage, let me begin by giving you my thesis for this message. And that thesis is simply this. We are ultimately defined by our relationship with Jesus. We're ultimately defined by our relationship with Jesus. Now, that's a pretty simple statement, but one that has massive implications if it is true. So let me show you how I got there and why I think that that is the truth that we need to understand from this passage. Let's start by looking at John the Baptist. Now, if I were to ask you what John the Baptist did, most of you could answer that question quite easily. Well, he baptized people. I mean, it's in the name, John the Baptist, right? But even though John was somewhat famous for baptizing people in the Jordan River, that was not his main role. Listen again to verses 6 to 8, as John is introduced here. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. So his main role was that of a 
witness. He came to bear witness about the light. And he was a witness, not just in the sense that he saw something, but in the sense that he testified about something. Now, we're going to learn more about John in upcoming chapters, but before Jesus began his public ministry, John the Baptist was the most famous and the most recognizable religious leader in the first century. All four Gospels preface the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of John the Baptist. So the Gospel of Mark, as an example, introduces us to John the Baptist like this. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were flocking to hear John the Baptist preach. They were flocking to be baptized by him. He was a big deal. And John could have been defined by that. He could have derived his identity from his own flourishing ministry and popularity. Lots of people wanted to be in the presence of John the Baptist. But instead, John the Baptist was ultimately defined by his relationship with Jesus. And I don't mean by that the fact that he was Jesus' second cousin, though he was. What I mean is that the most important thing about John the Baptist is where he stood in relation to Jesus. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And this is really important for us to understand about where we stand in relation to Jesus. So in team sports, you will sometimes hear a description of a player along the lines of, you know, he seems more concerned with the name on the back of his jersey than the the one on the front of the jersey. And the idea is that rather than being a team player, this individual is more concerned with his own sort of personal statistics and, and accomplishments and doesn't care so much which team he plays for. Sometimes you'll see a difference even when like NHLers will go to the Olympics and they'll play there and they will say something like, it's, there's just something about putting on that maple leaf and playing for your country that alters your perspective. You, you become more concerned with what's on the front of the jersey than what's on the back of the jersey. Now, I'm actually saying more than just that John the Baptist was on Team Jesus and we should be on Team Jesus too. John's entire life and ministry was devoted to pointing others to Jesus. In spite of all his personal success and popularity, that was his mission. He came to bear witness about the light. What a great way to live. Verse 7 says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Zach Ertz is a tight end in the NFL. He was traded this week from the Philadelphia Eagles to the Arizona Cardinals. Zach Ertz is also a committed Christian. And here's what he said about his NFL career. He said, our number one goal on this earth is to make disciples. This is a platform to draw people to the word, to Jesus. And what Zach Ertz is saying, or what he was saying, is is not that he's an NFL player who happens to be a Christian, but that he is a Christian who happens to be an NFL player. And he will use whatever position he has to point other people to Jesus. 
the relationship that ultimately defines him is his relationship with Jesus. And this is what we see with John the Baptist. Now, there's a scene that takes place a little bit later in the Gospel of John where we see what this looks like in practice. By the time we reach chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, Jesus' popularity is growing. Some of those crowds who used to go out and hear John the Baptist preach are now going to hear Jesus preach. And so this raises a question amongst the disciples of John the Baptist. And they come to him with this question. And it's recorded like this. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right, that's how John understood his relationship to Jesus, where he stood in relation to Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, we might hear that or read that and think, well, of course that was true for John the Baptist. I mean, he had this very special and specific calling from God. He was sent to a particular function in the history of salvation to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. But that's not true for me. And I want to say not so fast. Now, I mentioned our mission statement earlier. The mission of Crossridge Church is to know Jesus and make him known. That's why we exist. There is a problem with that mission statement, however. And the problem is that it's possible to read it the wrong way. It's possible to read that statement as though our mission as a church consists of two things. Firstly, to know Jesus, and then secondly, to make him known. And that second part is, you know, it's kind of optional. This is a little bit like the problem encountered with the first question asked in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question from that historic catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In our day, it was John Piper who drew attention to the fact that those are not two separate activities, but one. And he modified that statement to say the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In the same way, I think when we read our mission statement or think about our mission statement, we ought to remember that you can't really know Jesus without wanting to make him known. And you can't make him known without actually knowing him. We can't separate those two things. You can't separate the call to follow Jesus from the call to mission. Now we can see this. When Jesus calls his first disciples, the calling of two of those disciples is recorded in Matthew chapter 4 like this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So you can't separate the call to follow Jesus 
from the call to be made into fishers of men. You can't separate the call to follow Jesus from the call to mission. So John the Baptist exemplifies one way to be related to Jesus. It is to be his witness, to be one who testifies about him, to be one who seeks to make him known. But this passage describes more than the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. If we are ultimately defined by our relationship with Jesus, this passage helps us understand two different ways we can relate to him. The first one is that we can reject him. And we see this response in verses 9 to 11. Verse 9 says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10 goes on to say, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So there's questions that come about from verse 9. What does it mean to say that the true light gives light to everyone? Is this some sort of internal illumination that happens, that takes place in the heart of every individual? Does it mean that everyone is slightly more enlightened because of the coming or the teaching of Jesus? What does it mean to say that this true light enlightens everyone? Well, Sam introduced us to the theme of light last week, the role that it plays in John's gospel. And we get a little better feel for that here. See, it's one thing to say that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness... And we can kind of celebrate that. We certainly do at Christmas time. But the truth is, not everyone loves the light. I mean, there are times where we decidedly don't like it. So it's getting darker these days. The days are getting shorter. And I know that one of my least favorite things to do right now is to wake up and to turn on the bathroom light because it's just kind of blinding. When it's dark, that's not what I want. And that's the way some people respond to the light of Jesus on a deeper level. The light that Jesus brings is just too much to take. It's kind of overwhelming. They don't want it. And the idea of light here refers to the way that light reveals things or exposes things. It shines on everyone and reveals the truth. Here's how New Testament scholar D.A. Carson put it. He said, it shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. That's verse 10. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by by this light. But some receive this revelation and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through God. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. That's how light is functioning here when it says this light shines on everyone. John's point here is that the witness that comes from the light from Jesus demands a response. And when the light exposes the corruption and sin that's in everyone's heart... Some will react like cockroaches when the light is flipped on. They run for cover. They seek to hide their evil deeds. But others will welcome the light knowing it's for their healing and their good. Later in John's gospel, we we read this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, darkness is a covering for some people, and they're not happy when the light of Jesus invades their dark spaces. Now, people are in all different places when it comes to their relationship with Jesus. I mean, some people have questions. They're in that sort of exploratory stage. And this is why we do things like Alpha and Christianity Explored, where people have an opportunity to ask questions. The question we explored at Alpha this week was, who is Jesus? And it's good to ask that kind of question, to probe the historical evidence for Jesus, especially in relation to his claims and his resurrection. And some of you might be in that place of exploration. I mean, you're, you're wanting to take in the information to assess the information about Jesus. That's a good thing to do. But there's another category of people who do not lack information. They simply refuse to accept or respond to the information they have. Some people don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want the light of Jesus to invade their dark spaces. They love the darkness rather than the light. They will do whatever they need to do to fight against it. This is why Jesus is so often rejected. Verses 10 and 11 describe the rejection of Jesus with a different metaphor, different than the light. Those verses again say, He was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own... And his own people did not receive him. It's a great irony in these verses. The world was made through Jesus. But when Jesus came to the world, he was not recognized by those he had made. A number of years ago now, Christopher Booker, great name for an author, wrote a book entitled The Seven Basic Plots. And the book was basically a survey of literature throughout history. His conclusion was that there are really only seven basic plots around which all stories revolve. Those seven basic plots are overcoming the monster, rags to riches, the quest, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, and rebirth. Now, maybe we could quibble about some of those points, but if you stop to think about it, you will find that most stories follow a familiar plot line, one that we've encountered many times before. And there are some stories that we've heard many times, but they never seem to get old. The details in the story might differ, but the basic story is the same in the telling of each story. And one such story is the story of the incognito king. The king who comes and moves about his people, but is not recognized by his subjects. You actually find this story all over the place. One of the most memorable versions of that story is in Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. So early in volume one, The Fellowship of the Ring, the hobbits, Frodo, Sam, Pippin, and Merry set off from their home on a quest related to a mysterious ring that Frodo's uncle Bilbo had entrusted to him. And early in their travels, they encounter a mysterious stranger, a ranger whose rootless wanderings have caused folks to view him with suspicion. He went by the name of Strider, though that wasn't his real name. And only as the drama unfolds over the three books or movies do the hobbits discover 
that the ominous strider is an ally, not an enemy, but also that he is actually their king. Aragorn, long exiled from his rightful throne. And if you read through literature, you'll find this story all over the place. English folklore contains several examples of that theme. Legends of Robin Hood tells of Richard the Lionhearted returning from the Crusades, costumed as an abbot. He's the king, but they don't recognize him. In his classic Ivanhoe, Sir Walter Scott portrayed Richard as a mysterious black knight. But really, this drama or this story of an unrecognized king is far older than English legend, far truer than the legend's blending of fact and fiction. The most startling version of that story of a king who comes and is not recognized by his subjects is the story of Jesus. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They didn't know him. But it's not just that the people didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't receive him or welcome him once his identity was known. They rejected him. And we don't find as many parables in the Gospel of John as we do in the other Gospels, but I want you to listen to this masterful parable that Jesus told that basically summarizes all of human history in about a hundred words. It's from Matthew 21. Jesus said, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Well, this is the story of the Bible in miniature. And Jesus is telling a parable about himself. All through history, God is the landowner. He's the one who digs this wine press, provides, creates. But along with that provision comes responsibilities. And when he sends to collect, they want nothing to do with him. They reject his servants, the prophets. They beat some. They kill others. And finally, he says, I'll send my son. And they reject and kill him. So one response we can make to Jesus, to the light that has come to the world is to reject him. But there's another response we can make. And that is that we can receive him. So listen again to verses or to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I've told you before that someday I plan on writing a book entitled The Big Butts of the Bible. Uh, This is one of those big butts. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the good news of the gospel. 
The way to become a child of God according to Jesus is not by the family you were born into. It's not by blood. It's not by the decision of a husband, as it says here. It is by receiving him. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? Well, the second half of verse 12 helps us understand. But to all who did receive him, that is to say, to those who believed in his name, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, for some people, that sounds way too simplistic. Just believe in Jesus, that's it? Well, throughout this series, we will explore what it means to believe. I mean, this is a word that John uses nearly a hundred times in his gospel. So we will do our best to unpack all of that. Belief is not just giving mental assent to a set of facts. It has this idea of active trust. But yes... Becoming a child of God is the result of believing in Jesus. This is how we do it. There is no other way. And don't take my word for it. Here's how Jesus says it later in John's gospel. He said, truly, I truly, 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 I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The Apostle John wrote this to a group of first century churches. He said, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And then he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says he writes this so that we might know, that we might have assurance that we have eternal life. And how do we have that assurance? Because we have believed or trusted in his son. The Apostle Paul says something similar. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And what John says in our passage is that the one who receives Jesus, the one who believes in his name, the one who puts his trust in him, to that person, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. Such an interesting way of putting it. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, sometimes we will say things like, well, what gives you the right? Or who gave you the right? And the answer to that question, when it comes to what gives you the right to call yourself a child of God, the answer to that question is Jesus has given me 
the right. One of my favorite preachers today is Alistair Begg. I've seen one of my favorite clips from one of his sermons making the rounds on social media lately. He's talking about the thief on the cross, the one who initially hurled insults at Jesus, but then recognized the innocence of Jesus and asked him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And you know the story. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Alistair Begg says, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing him out one moment, along with your friend, you've never been in a Bible study, you never got baptized, you don't know the first thing about church membership, and yet you made it. How did you make it? And then I love what he says. He goes on to imagine what that man's reception in heaven must have been like. He said, that's what the angel must have said. What are you doing here? I don't know. Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. And the supervisor angel comes. Now, just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. And what about the doctrine of scripture? And the guy's just staring. And finally, in frustration, the angel says, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. See, that's the only thing that ultimately matters. It's that Jesus has given us the right to become the children of God. And it is on that basis that we will stand before him in heaven. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So if we are ultimately defined by our relationship with Jesus, I want to end with the simplest of questions. Have you received Jesus? Have you believed in his name and placed your trust in him? If you're here this morning and that is something you're in the process of, we would love to talk with you. I'd love to chat with you afterwards and just process that journey with you. But that is the relationship that defines us. It's our relationship with Jesus and where we stand in relation to him that matters. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the simple truth of your word. That it's not our efforts. It's not the decision of an individual parents that cause us to be born anew, it is our relationship with Jesus. And Lord, we pray that, that as we reflect even on that simple truth, that we are ultimately defined by our relationship with you. God, if we have strayed in that relationship, if we are walking out of fellowship with you, would you call us back to yourself? Lord, if we are in that place where we are processing, deciding, God, I pray you would speak to any hearts here who need to just place their trust and their confidence in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.